are we trained in suffering? And uh, this is something that the early church was very well aware of and they were very well trained in. But life is filled with these unexpected turns as we have experienced here in 2020. And um, it's time for us to look at a biblical response a biblical response we ought to have during difficult times, during times of suffering. Now, uh, for the Christian, there's, of course, suffering because of regular situations and regular circumstances. And uh, then, of course, there's also suffering due to persecution. And even though the lockdown has got nothing to do with persecution as far as we can see, of course, but suffering, however, was not a foreign concept to the early church and should not be a foreign concept to us as a New Testament church. Learning to trust God during times of uncertainty was a commonplace for the early church fathers, the first century Christians, second century Christians, third century Christians, but especially for those that we see during the book of Acts. And uh, we see the story of the Apostle Paul. He was Saul at the time, and um, he was persecuting the church, and then suddenly one day on the road to Damascus, God throws him off of his horse. There was a light that shines around him and Jesus started speaking to him and here he sees Jesus as all the other apostles did. And God tells him, why are you persecuting me? Jesus tells him because he was persecuting the church, of course. But then he gets struck blind. He gets taken to the street straight, called straight. God eventually a few days later speaks to the prophet Ananias and says to Ananias, go and meet Saul of Tarsus and lay hands on him. And Ananias says to God, God, I'm not doing it. Haven't you heard how that guy's persecuting everybody and he's killing everybody? Why would I go and find him? He's looking for me. And God says, no, go to him. And here, I want to pick it up right there in Acts 9, 15. It says, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is a chosen instrument of mine. And this is long before, long before he actually served God wholeheartedly. God already chose him to be an instrument of God. And then God says, To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer. I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer. This was the first thing that God said he was going to do with the apostle Paul. The first thing he was going to do is he was going to show him how much he would have to suffer for his name's sake. Now, in our current situation, I've been concerned for Christians all over the world uh, that do not know, that do not know how to trust God in the dark. And how do you trust God in uncertain times? Like right now. Many people are simply not ready for their world to be shaken without also having their faith shaken at the same time. So in light of that, I have two goals here today. And uh, I know that both of these are going to really bless you. So please, stay tuned and let the Lord work with your heart as you look to the Word of God today. The first goal I have is to look into Scripture on how to trust God in the dark, learning to trust God during a time of shaking. What does the Bible say about that? Number two, uh, I have this end in mind, and that is to offer you four ways 
you can test to see if, in fact, you are trusting God right now. Oftentimes this happens to me. I think I'm trusting God regarding a certain situation in my life. And then a half hour later, I think I'm feeling different again. And so I don't know if I'm trusting anymore or not. Do I trust God or don't I trust God? And oftentimes I measure the way I trust. I measure my trust in God by the way I feel. And so today I'm going to give you four things you can measure yourself with to see if in fact you are trusting God or not. So as a warning, (laughs) this starts off really low. Uh, today's scripture starts off on a pretty low note, but it ends with fantastic hope. And so today, I know that you're going to be done here filled with the hope of God's Word. Psalms 88, or Psalm 88, verse 1 through 18. If you don't mind turning there, Psalm 88, verse 1, we're going to start reading. And by the way, I am reading this out of the NLT for clarity's sake. The Bible says, the psalmist writing, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out to you by day. I come to you at night. All right, let me just pause there, clarify something. Here we have a psalmist. As a matter of fact, this, the guy that wrote this psalm, his name was Haman, and you can read more about this man in 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He was a worship leader. And here Haman, this psalmist is writing the psalm and it's very evident that he is a believer in God. He is a God-fearing man. That's why he's saying, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry to you by day, I come to you at night. Verse 2, now hear my prayer, listen to my cry. In other words, we are now about to read a prayer of a God-fearing man in the Old Testament. He says, for my life is full of troubles, and death draws nigh. I mean, this is a serious circumstance this guy's in. He says, I'm as good as dead, like a strong man with no strength left. They have left me among the dead, and I lie like a corpse in a grave. I'm forgotten, cut off from your care. Interesting here, this God-fearing man, worship leader in the Old Testament, is accusing God of forgetting Him and of cutting Him off. Verse 6, You have thrown me into the lowest pit, into the darkest depths. Your anger weighs me down. With wave after wave, you have engulfed me. You have driven my friends away by making me repulsive to them. I am trapped with no way, no way of escape. Now, let me just say this, because I know some of you are thinking like, oh, wow, this is Old Testament. This is Okay, let me just say, whether, whether this writer, whether the author is right or wrong about God on this issue is not my point. The issue I want to point out is that he is accusing God for all of his troubles, all right? So hang in there with me. Verse 9. My eyes are blinded by my tears. Each day I beg for your help. O Lord, I lift my hands to you for mercy. And then he says this, Are your wonderful deeds of any use to the dead? God, do the dead rise up and praise you? Can those in the grave declare your unfailing love? 
Can they proclaim your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Can the, can the darkest... Or can the darkest speak or darkness speak of your wonderful deeds? Can anyone in the land of forgetfulness talk about your righteousness? In other words, he's saying, God, how am I of any use to you when I'm dead? Why are you not saving me? And then he says, verse 13, O Lord, I cry out to you. I will keep on pleading day by day, O Lord, why do you reject me? Why do you turn your face from me? I've been sick and close to death since my youth, since I've been young. This has been the story of my life. I stand helpless and desperate before your, te before your terrors. Your fierce anger has overwhelmed me. Your terrors have paralyzed me. They swirl around me like floodwaters all day long. They have engulfed me completely. You have taken away my companions and loved ones. Darkness is my closest friend. In the original, it says it the other way around. In the original, it says, my closest friend, darkness. Not you, darkness. He ends on a really low note and says, thanks a lot. Thanks for nothing. It almost seems like he has a bad attitude. <laughs> He's really struggling with his relationship with God, wondering, God, where are you? Why are you not saving me? Why are you allowing this to happen to me? By the way, it seems like it's you who's doing it to me. And guess what? It's been my whole entire life, and now I have found a friend, a friend that, ha that has no expectation, that gives me no expectations, it's darkness. At least darkness didn't give me an expectation. So let's look at that. The first thing we can learn from this is that expectation has a lot to do with how a person deals with suffering. You see, some expect the Christian life to be a life that's constant favor from the front, favor from the back, favor in the morning, favor at night, favor all day long. And so what they do is when, when people become Christians, they oftentimes expect that but get something opposite from what they've expected. However, we have to have a biblically healthy perspective of life. And I'm not saying that the psalmist had a healthy perspective of life. I'm just saying that you and I, we need to look to the Bible and have a healthy biblical perspective of life in order to prevent ourselves from the trap of being disillusioned by life. If somebody blows smoke at you all day long, giving you false promise after false promise after false promise after false promise, the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. All right, so hope deferred means what? I, I had hope, but now, oh, you know, I had these great New Year's resolutions, but poof coronavirus. Now my whole entire year is wiped out. Not only is my year wiped out, I just got, I just lost my job. I just, my salary just got cut. I, I just, uh, um, you know, my, my New Year's resolutions are just out the window. There goes my 401k. There goes all my hopes for this year and for the next couple of years possibly. So the Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. So it's really important for you and I to study what Scriptures talk about and what Scriptures give us directives 
in when it comes to hard times and suffering. What is the Bible's doctrine on suffering? You see, Jesus said this in John 15, 20. He says, remember the word that I speak to you or that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. All right, so Jesus was very clear that the Bible doesn't promise an easy life for the Christian. That is not the promise you bought into when you raised your hand and you said, I want to submit my life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. There is, in fact, no biblical promise for an easy life. In John 16, 33, the Bible says, Jesus speaking, These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. All right? We find peace where? In Christ. And then he continues and he says, In the world, however, you have tribulation. So he's comparing these two. He says, I've said this to you so that you would know. In me you will find peace. In the world, tribulation. Then he says, but take courage, I have overcome the world. What he's saying is, he too was born on this earth. And he too was raised and grew up on this earth. And he too faced everything every man has ever faced. But he has overcome, so take heart. He didn't destroy all hard times so you wouldn't have any. He said, look, watch me, I got through it, so can you. Because all things are possible to him who believes. So suffering might not be your fault, but, check this out, the disappointments and disillusionments that comes from false expectations, those are your and my faults. Don't ever buy into a promise God didn't give you. And herein lies a major problem. So when it comes to uh, people who hold on to false expectations about life and, and those people who expect to be exempt from all kinds of suffering and heart, hardships in life, uh, Tim Keller actually has a thought and he says this, and I'll quote, Very often, half the pain you're experiencing is not from the suffering itself. Half the pain you're experiencing is not from the suffering itself but from the false expectations telling you that life wasn't supposed to have hardships at all. Why? Because now we disappointed. Our bubble just got burst because I had these great New Year's resolutions and now look at what's going on. I am so disappointed and now we've added suffering upon suffering. So realize that expectation has a lot to do with how a person deals with suffering. Number two, dark times could be your greatest teacher of God's grace. Dark times could be your greatest teacher regarding the grace of God. The author prays this, and he doesn't seem very humble in his prayer, however, but rather assuming. Uh, in his prayer, he's interrogating God, and he says this. He says, Do you show your wonderful creations to the dead? Do you do that, God? Do those who are dead rise up and praise you for it? Do they, God? He says, is your love declared in the grave? 
He says, is your faithfulness known in the land of destruction? Do they know your faithfulness when everything is destroyed and people are dead and in the grave? Is that how your faithfulness ought to be declared, God? The author is saying, I want to be a witness of your greatness, of your love, of your faithfulness. I want to be that witness that declares all of this. I want to tell everybody, but how, how am I going to do it if I'm dead? Why are you not saving me, God? How am I going to do this if I'm a complete failure, God? He's being somewhat assuming. And this is certainly not the most famous prayer of consecration, saying, where he's praying, God, not my will be done, but yours be done in me. No, it's the exact opposite. It's like, God, why are you not doing my will? And this author says, from my youth, I've experienced troubled times. In other words, God, my life has al- it's always been the same for me. Why am I always getting a short end of the stick? Why are my plans always not working out? You know, it doesn't matter what it is, life happens to me. God, why is it that it seems like you've never been for me? Then he ends off by saying, darkness is my best friend. I mean, this is horrible. I've looked for friends and guess where I found one, God? Darkness. So, here, here, I just wanted to bring that to you because I want to ask this question. God, why is this prayer in the Bible? Why was this added to the canon of Scripture? How can that God put this into Psalms? along with all the other wonderful song inside of Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He lays me down in greed pastures. He restores my soul. Darkness, my best friend. It's so not part of stuff, isn't it? Why is this there, is the question. Derek Kidner, who was warden at Tyndale House for many years, he says about this psalm, and I want to quote it to you, he says, The very presence of this prayer in scriptures is a witness to God's understanding. He says, God knows how men speak when they're desperate. How many of you have ever said stuff that you wish you never did? (laughs) Yeah. But the fantastic thing about this is, here is Heman, the author of this prayer, And he's writing about his life, but at the same time, he's actually prophesying about Jesus. Who was left in the dirt, in the dust, and in death. God turned his face from him. However, we're going to look at it in the context of heaven. And the very fact that God put these prayers in the Psalms tells us that God knows that dark times is in fact the best place to learn about the grace of God. Let me say that again. Dark times, times of uncertainty, difficult times, hardships, is in fact the place where you can learn best about the grace of God. His grace becomes ultimately important to the man who's desperate. His grace becomes the most valuable treasure to the person who's absolutely hopeless, who's completely distressed and in, and in despair. That person looks at the grace of God and goes, the, most tre- the greatest treasure I have is the grace of God. 
His grace is the ultimate relief to the person in, in anguish. The grace of God is something I am taught when I go through the darkest time of my life. It's true. In Psalms 23 verse 5, look at it. It says, you God prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It's when I have great enemies, there is your table prepared for me. In other words, it is dark times, that we, in the dark times that we learn about God's providing grace. Paul, he deals with a thorn in his flesh. And I can only imagine how irritating, painful, distracting, uncomfortable, unnecessary this thorn in the flesh seemed to him. So he begs God to take it away. But here's God's response in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9a. He said, my grace, Paul, is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. My grace is enough. Paul, now that you have that thorn, I'm not taking it out. I'm not removing it. I'm not here. I'm just telling you right now, my grace, Paul. You see, in your darkest times is is when it's time for you to turn to grace and say, thank you, God, for your grace. And allow your worst times in life to teach you the greatest things about grace. It is in the dark times in life, the hard times in life, the painful moments of life that we learn most about God's grace and the fact that it is, in fact, what? Sufficient for you. It's, in fact, sufficient for you. Your circumstances don't have to change. We need to understand the grace of God. Our understanding of God's grace needs to change because it is sufficient for us, no matter what it is we're going through. So learn this lesson. In these times, His grace is enough for you. Number three. What do we learn from this prayer in Psalms? Is that dark times allows greatness to be forged in you. Difficult times, uncertain times, dangerous times are, are the times that greatness is forged within you. Strength is forged within you and impurities leave your faith. You see, the author is saying some questionable things to God and this is not the psalmist's most frameable prayer or repostable prayer. You know, it's not like the prayer of Jabez that everybody was freaking out about and reposting and writing books about. No, this prayer here, nobody looks at because it's like, who wants that prayer on their wall? It's not a shareable prayer. But the thing is, this prayer is powerful because it's teaching us something. It's showing us how this Heman, the man who wrote this, this worship leader, this leader within the people, the, the people of God, he prayed this prayer saying these things to God. You see here, this psalmist is act, acts just like Job. Uh, we all know the story of Job. In essence, what happened, for those of you that don't know, that Satan goes to God and Satan says to God, Job only serves you for what he can get out of you. You are his sugar daddy. The moment you got nothing left to give him, he'll be gone. As a matter of fact, he will curse you. This is the story of Job. 
Job isn't, there's no love for you in this relationship, God. This is not about love, Job's love for you. No, this is about him using you. He loves himself so much that he'll use you. He's only in it for the benefit that he can get from you. So Satan says that there's no love in this relationship. And the moment you take all these goodies away, he'll curse you and he'll walk away from you. So God says, really? Job says, I know it. And so as you know the story of Job, Job went through absolute literal hell. And during this time, Job was going through this worst possible imaginable situation. He prayed very strong prayers to God. He made very strong statements about God. Whether right or wrong is not my point. Let's not get into a doctrinal issue about that. That's not my point. But my point is, he said these things to God. I'll give you two, two times he said something to God that I would fear to say. Job says in 10 verse, uh, chap, Job chapter 10 verse 3, he says, what do you gain by oppressing me? Like, what do you gain, God? Why do you reject me? The work of your own hands. And then he ends the statement by saying, while smiling on the schemes of the wicked. God, does this please you? I'm here, I've lost everything. I'm, I'm, I've got boils from the top of my head to the toes of my feet. And you, God, he says, while standing or smiling on the schemes of the wicked. Job 30 verse 19, he says, He throws me into the mud and I'm reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, God, but you don't answer. I stand up. But you merely look at me. That's all you do. You just look. The point here is that he talked to God. The point is that he complained to God. The point is that he accused God and that he came to God whining about God to God. But he never, ever turned away from God. Which is what Satan said Job would do. Job never walked away from God. He stayed with God even when he was getting nothing from God. Everybody in his life was telling him, for instance, his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? Not Job. God, why? Does this please you, God? Where are you, God? You're just standing there looking? Smiling on the wicked while I've served you my whole life. Is this what I get? And everybody encouraged him to curse God and die. But Job didn't. He never walked away from God. Just like folks, I believe you will never walk from God. You will walk with God, but never away from Him. You will run to God, but never away from Him. I know some of you might be very disappointed. I know some of you might be very frustrated. Most of you are dealing with a tremendous amount of fear and anxiety. Uncertain times. And when the world shakes, so does some people's faith. But not yours. Not yours. You will turn to God in every situation. 
And as Job did this, check this out. Satan lost and God won. Because that's what Satan said. He said, the moment Job can no longer get anything from you, if everything's taken from him, he will curse you. But it turns out that Job did not. <clears throat> Even though he was frustrated, disillusioned, disappointment, dis he needed encouragement. He was discouraged. He was depressed. He was broken. But no, he didn't walk away from God. And God won. You see, this process of suffering was what made Job into the man that has now been celebrated for thousands upon thousands of years as the man who has remained faithful to God in the midst of the darkest and most unimaginable sufferings. He remained faithful to God. This proves that Job's worst moments became Job's greatest moments. What was horrible in the temporal became great in the eternal. Job's greatest sufferings forged Job's strongest character. Job's greatest sufferings revealed Job's greatest strengths. Job's hardest moments has placed Job in the eternal scriptures as one who has overcome. So our takeaway here is that during times of suffering and confusion, we have to remind ourselves this, that this is our time to shine. This is our time to be carriers of hope. This is our time to say, even if I'm not getting anything out of this, I'm still going to worship my God. This is our time to hold on and say, even if I do not see God's saving hand anywhere in my situation, I'm still going to live for Him. Even if I'm not hearing from God for direction, I'm not going to serve another. I'm not going to turn to another. I'm not going to bow to another, even if it's so. Even if I cannot see God's goodness in this darkness, I will not hold back my praises. I will not hold back my, the honor that is due to God. I will not hold back my worship to God. This is what will turn you into a person who is not a transactional relationship with God, but a person who serves God because of who He is and not because of what He can do for you. This is a wonderful time for purification in every one of us. This is a wonderful time to purify even the church. And who do you really believe? Who do you really trust? Who do you really worship? Who do you really run to? Who is your actual Savior? Who do you really believe in? This is a wonderful time for all of that to be settled in every person. You see, zero compromise during hard times will turn you into a person of durability. It'll turn you into a person of stability. It'll turn you into a person of de dependability. It'll turn you into a person of great strength. And we have to allow ourselves to walk through a fire and come out stronger, more dependable, more stable. Amen? So it's almost like this. During difficult times of hardship and suffering, God is looking at you and He's saying, did you enter Christianity for me to serve you or for you to serve me? And this is a time we are faced with that question. You see, it is during dark times that you have 
to fill in the boxes. Are you going to love God or are you going to love self? Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve self? And when you check the box, I'm going to love God and serve God no matter what the hardships are that I'm facing, no matter what the dangers or the suffering is, it will make you resolute, it will make you strong, it will make you, it will make you more resolved. You see, choosing God during fire, watch this, all right? Choosing God during your fire eliminates the infirmities from your heart and mind. Choosing God during fire is just like the refiner's fire burns all of the infirmities out of the gold during the purifying process. So also you are purified during dark times, during hardships and during sufferings. Because when you go through it, you, get, you have to say, God, I'm yours. When you go through it, it's time for you to say, God, I choose you, not comfort. I choose you, not anger. I choose you, not disappointment. I choose you, not unbelief. Because that's what it does for us. Every person that goes through hard times will be facing that fork in the road. So you might say, okay, Jacques. I'm going to trust God in the dark, all right? I'm choosing to serve God and love God no matter what. I'm ready to learn about the grace of God during difficult times. I'm going to allow hard times to forge greatness within me. I'm going to do everything I believe God put that psalm in the Bible for. I'm going to allow what God wants to do in me to happen in me. I'm, I'm just, uh, you know, I, I'm just doing these things because right now I think this is the best thing to do. So I have to put my trust in God. But here comes the question of life. <laughs> how do I know that I'm actually trusting God? I mean, how do I know if my heart really is trusting Him? Because I have found my heart to be, be like a pendulum that swings at 120 miles an hour. It's all the way trust, all the way unbelief. All the way trust, all the way unbelief. And I don't always know, am I trusting God or am I not trusting God? How do I measure whether I am or not? So I have four questions or four question template through which you can filter your situation to see if you are actually trusting God or not, okay? And it goes like this. I trust God when I am. I trust God in the dark when I am. Fill in the blank. Here's the first one. I trust God in the dark when I am obedient without having all the details. Is when I choose to obey God even though I don't have all the details. I choose obedience. Greatest example in the Bible probably is the example of Noah. God comes to him and says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. The word there is really a big box out of gopher wood, and I want you to make it huge. Why? Because, trust me, I'm destroying this earth, but I'm going to save you and a handful through this ark. And here are the dimensions, and he gives him all these dimensions, and he has a lot of details regarding what it is he needs to be obedient with, but he doesn't know why, and he doesn't know how this is going to save him. And so without ever having seen rain, without ever having seen a flood, 
while being mocked by everybody else, for 75 years, Noah obeys God. Point is, trusting God enough so you, for you to obey Him without having all the details, this is proof that you're actually trusting Him. So, the question here is, can you obey God even though you have a million questions regarding God's directives He gave you? Can you still, can you still obey Him? Because if you can, this is a sign that you are trusting Him. Disobedience is a sign that you're not trusting Him. Demanding that I have all the details before I do what you say I should do is a sign that I'm not trusting Him. But saying, God, I don't have all the details. You told me to go ahead and obey you. I'm going to obey you anyway because I trust you. All right, number two. I trust God in the dark when I am careless yet not care. Oh, excuse me, <laughs> the other way around. I know that I'm trusting God in the dark when I am caref uh, carefree, yet not careless. Carefree, yet not careless. All right. You know that it's the will of God that you do not get filled with the cares of this world, right? I mean, if you look at Mark 4, verse 19, the Bible says, And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, enter into a person's life and chokes the Word, chokes the Word, and the Word becomes unfruitful. The cares of this world is not the will of God for you. Christ Nation family, let me say that again. Being filled with the cares of this world is to be out of God's will at this point, every one of us, myself included, are tempted to be filled with the cares of this world. But it is the will of God that you be free from the cares of this world, that you be carefree. Why? Because He cares for you, so you don't have to walk around filled with the cares of this world. Now, a great example of this is Joseph. Now, we just studied the gospel according to Joseph. And you can stay in the life of Joseph for many months and see all that God has for us to know. But I want to say this about Joseph in regards to trusting. Joseph never became bitter and he never became cynical. And if ever there was a man that had the right to become bitter and cynical was Joseph. Why? Because nowhere in the Bible do we see that there is ever a mention of Joseph's sins. Jo it doesn't mention one sin of Joseph. He was, he was favored by his father, hated by his brothers because of that. He was thrown into a pit. He was pulled out, sold into slavery. Then... He worked his way up. He was lied about, thrown into prison, forgotten by the butler, the cupbearer, and the baker. And then eventually, by the providence of God, he moves up the ranks and he becomes the prime minister of the nation. And he ends up becoming the very savior 
of the brothers who sold him into slavery, which is the story of Jesus. But we see that throughout the life of Joseph, Joseph never became bitter. He never became cynical in life. How do we know this? Because nowhere did he ever say, you know what? I give up. I quit. I don't care anymore. He never said this. He was carefree, but never careless. How do we know this? Because of how diligent he was, how excellent he was, how faithful he was in every scenario he found himself in. Faithful to God and faithful to those he served under. So Joseph never got filled with the cares of this world to the point where he just quit. No, he remained, he remained carefree, but never careless. And so this is how we know that we are trusting God. Because the only possible way Joseph was able to remain carefree, yet not careless, is because he knew that there was a greater plan in the works. There was the divine providential plan of God in the works. And today, we as New, Te New Testament Christians, we know that all things work together for God's good and for your good because God's good is your good and your good is God's good. And all things work together for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Therefore, family, you and I, like Joseph, we can be carefree without being careless. Why? Because we're trusting in the almighty, sovereign hand of God in every situation. Sometimes when I look into these truths, I just feel like raising my hands and saying, God, thank you. And that is faith. That is faith in the midst of a storm. God, thank you. Thank you for, I know that I don't have the details, but I can obey you. I can submit to you. God, I don't have all the details. All I'm looking at is the news being filled with bad news, but I am carefree. However, whatever is in front of me, I will never be careless and unfaithful with what you have placed in my hands. This way I know that I'm trusting God. Number three, I know that I trust God in the dark when I am secure, secure in the midst of mystery. Secure in the midst of mystery. I can only imagine Joseph. He's been through everything he's been through. Then he was lied about. He was thrown into a prison. And in the prison, do you know that he became second in charge below the warden of that prison? The warden of that prison left everything to a prisoner, Joseph, <laughs> to take care of. He was such an excellent, diligent young man because he knew God was at work. But you know what? He did not know all the details. He did not know all the details. And in the same way, you and I, we don't know all the details of what's going on. There's so much mystery around everything that's going on in the world today, whether it be uh, the coronavirus or whether it be the economy or whether it be what's going to happen to our job. There's so much mystery going on in this world. But I can imagine here's Joseph secure in a prison and eventually running that prison, secure in the midst of mystery. You and I have been called to be secure in the midst of mystery, and that will be the result of the person who trusts God. The person who really trusts God 
is secure in the midst of mystery. People tend to fall apart when they're faced with the unknown. But check this out. God calls Abram, and He says, Abram, leave your family, leave your land, leave your country, leave everything behind, and come. He says, where to? He says, I'll show you. Come. <laughs> Are you kidding? Abram goes, here I am, Lord. And God uses Abram, and He starts a nation. He's the father of our faith today. Because he was confident and secure in the midst of mystery. What was he confident and secure about? In the promise of God. You see? It's you know, you know that you trust in God in the midst of darkness when in fact you secure in the midst of mystery. Hey, do you know the world's burning and falling apart? The sky's falling? Yes. Why are you so confident? Oh, I trust God. I'm confident and secure in the midst of mystery. This is proof of the fact that a person's trusting God. Number four, and I'm finishing with this. Actually, you know, I have one example for that one. Confident and secure in the midst of mystery. Jesus goes to the disciples and He says, Hey, leave your boats. You see your income, your livelihood, let it go. Follow me. Where to, Jesus? I'll show you. You be my disciple. If, let me f just follow me. And they did. They let everything go. Why? They trusted. You and I, family of God, at, at this point in time, nobody should be more confident and secure than a believing Christian who trusts God with all of their heart and who does not, who do not lean a, uh, on, the, on their own understanding. We ought to be the light. We ought to be the pillars people can lean upon. We ought to be the trees people can find shelter under. We ought to be the words of encouragement to people because we ought to be good at and know how to deal with times of darkness, with difficult times, with hardships and with suffering. We need to know how to, do, how to live through these things securely and confidently. Why? Because we trust. We know how to trust. So the first we saw is that I trust God in the darkness when I'm obedient without having all the details. Number two, I know that I'm trusting God in the dark when I'm careless. No, 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 no. Carefree, yet not careless. Number three, I know that I trust God in the darkness when I am secure in the midst of mystery. Finally, I trust God when I... I'm willing to respond first. Trust God as a first response. Let me explain this. I hope I have your attention because I know that this is going to bless you, okay? God has, there's something about being first, okay? The firstborn. The oldest in the family used to get the blessing. The first. Now, bring your first fruits. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. I am the first and the last. There's something about first. The first day of the week. Sanctified unto me. There's something about the first. And God has called us to step out in faith because we trust Him. So I want to mention it to you this way, okay? Trust is, and here's the definition, the line that divides 
my responsibilities from God's responsibilities. Trust is the line that divides my responsibilities from God's responsibilities. Trust is when I come to the place, after I have responded to God, now I trust. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you'll be saved. So in other words, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised Him from the dead. Now I trust Him that He's going to save me. I will do. In other words, you first do what I called you to do, God says. Then trust me that I will do what I said I would do. You believe in me. And now trust that I will do what I said I would do, which is I would save you for it. So I'm going to go to our blackboard, and I'm going to show you just three examples of how trust works, okay? This is going to be so helpful, so give me two minutes. And as we walk over here to the blackboard, um, this was done last night, so I hope you can read it all. But here is the place of trust, all right? The place of trust. And to get here... You have to hear the Word of God. So many people are attempting to trust just for the sake of trusting, but it's impossible to trust if you don't know what to trust in. I trust in God. What about God are you trusting in? Well, I trust His promise. Well, what is His promise? Well, that I don't know. I just trust it. Well, you don't know what it is. You have to get into the Word of God in order to know what to trust in, right? So here, to get to this place of trust, you have to be a first responder. Let's say it that way. A first responder. In other words, Matthew 6.33, Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and all of His righteousness. What must we do? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And then you can trust God to do what He said He would do, which is what? And all these things will be added unto you. Right? So be a first responder so that you can just trust in God. Confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. And trust Him that He will do what He said He would do, which is to save you. Watch the next one. Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train your child in the way that they should go. Train him in the way that he should go. And then trust God. Rest in God. Rely upon God that he would, promise, he would do what he promised he would do, which is, and they shall not depart. All right? So I, can be, I need to be a responder of, I need to respond to what? A scripture. So I can trust in God to complete the promise of that scripture. Here's a third one. In 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14, the Bible says, If my people will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways. <laughs> if my people will humble themselves and pray, and turn from their wicked ways, then they can enter the place of trusting that I will do what I said I would do, which is I will heal their land. Now, we... I'm not going to get into the doctrinal issue of it. He was talking to Israel who lived in that spe specific place on the, on the world map. And currently we don't live there. And uh, currently Christians live everywhere in every nation. And that promise still remains for the body of Christ 
and the geographies that the body of Christ has been called to, all right? So the point is that when we are a first responder, we hear the Word of God and we respond, that's when we can trust that God will fulfill the promise He gave us. It happens so for salvation, and it happens so for everything else that God has given us. It's impossible for me to say, and this is where people usually get it wrong, they go, okay, and all these things need to be added unto me so that I can trust God enough in order to seek first His kingdom. See how people work it backwards? They go like, okay, God, when I see you give me all these things, and all these things are added to me, which is clothes, food, and so forth, all right? When all these things, when I see that miracle, oh, then I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you enough to seek you first and to seek your kingdom. But God says, no, it works the other way around. Trust doesn't work this way. It works that way. You'll be a first responder. Why? Because trust is the line that divides my response from God's response. And so, folks, family, I'm going to go back to the pulpit here. So my point is here that it is really time for you and I to get into the Word. This is a time you are in your home, quarantined, get away from Netflix, and get into Scriptures so that when you hear the Word of God, you can be a first responder and you can trust Him. Therefore, folks, I know that I trust God in the dark when I'm obedient without having all the details. I know that I can trust God in the dark when I am carefree yet not careless. Number three, I know that I trust God in the dark when I am secure in the midst of mystery. Number four, I know that I trust God when I am a first responder. I see the scriptures and I'm in. I see the word of God and I give myself to it. I hear the word of God and I embrace it. Why? Because when I do, I just rest in it. Oh, I rest in the fact that God is sovereign over His Word. And I have embraced it. That's why. That's the only proof I have that I have embraced Jesus Christ. Amen.